answers end conversations and questions start them. So that's the first thing. It depends what you want. If what you want is to hear that, you know, click shot of the end of the discussion, then then you give an answer. Um, but I mean, it's almost like when a child says, is this a good thing or not? And the best answer usually that a parent can give is, what do you think? Because that's an invitation to a conversation. Laughter in the kitchen, the children make a mess. The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. of October, we feel the sorrow of St. Jude, void between strangers as the clock quickly moves. It's a long way from paradise, a long way from Eden's tree. It's a new year, it's a new song, it's the same mystery. Welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Uh, we're really excited uh, to release to you the second part in our three-part series on religious diversity, religious pluralism. Uh, this week, we've got a really cool guest. We've got Rabbi David Wolpe. Uh, he is the Max Webb Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple out in Los Angeles, California. Um, he was named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek Magazine and one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by Jerusalem Post. Um, he is... Also uh, a teacher, he's previously taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York, the American Jewish University in Los Angeles, Hunter College, and UCLA. Um, he's had his work profiled all over the New York Times. He's been a regular columnist for Time Magazine, Time.com, and he writes uh, regularly. If you Google him, uh, you'll see him pop up in the LA Times, Washington Post, um, on, uh, through their On Faith website, the Huffington Post, and New York Jewish Week. Um, he's also been on TV a ton of times. Uh, you may have seen him on the Today Show, Face the Nation, ABC This Morning, and CBS This Morning. And in addition, he's also uh, been featured on series on PBS, A&E, The History Channel, and The Discovery Channel. Um, he's also a best-selling author, and his most recent book is the one that we, we talk a lot about on this particular episode, uh, it's a book called Why Faith Matters. Uh, we really, really loved it. Cannot recommend it enough. And uh, we touch a lot on that book. So you're going to see we kind of deviate a little bit from the theme of this uh, three-part series a little bit. Um, obviously, we wanted to do a little uh, high-level overview of Judaism and kind of follow the same format as uh, we did last week. Uh, but the book was so good that uh, we felt a little remiss if we didn't uh, dive into some of the topics and subject matter that he talks about in the book. Um, so we kind of go into that more. Um, trust me, you're going you're gonna to like it. Uh, you're going to appreciate the fact that we kind of deviated from our game plan. Um, and then uh, next week, we will wrap up our three-part series, and we'll talk about Hinduism. So we have a really cool guest for you there. Can't wait to release that one. But uh, uh, this week, like I said, uh, Rabbi David Wolpe, I think you guys are going to love this one. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. And without further ado, Rabbi David Wolpe. Lost in my mind again, suddenly I'm alone. That loneliness comes and goes, it speaks harsh words to me. It's a new year, it's a new song. Well, Rabbi Wolpe, um, John and I are overexcited to, to have you on the podcast. It's uh, something like this is long past due, so thank you so much for clearing some time for, for us today and hang out with us here on the Deconstructionist Podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. One, one of the questions that we like to start off with is, is how our guests got into the work that they, they presently do, and, and I think you have a very interesting backstory in that. If I remember reading correctly, 
Um, your father was also a rabbi, if I if I read that correctly. My father was a rabbi. He was a rabbi in uh, Philadelphia for most of his career. A wonderful and very successful rabbi, and that's something that I thought I would never want to do. Why is that? Uh, well, because I, it seemed good for him to do, but I, you know, like a lot of people, I thought this is my father's work. Mm. It's not my own. And uh, however... Um, and, I, and what I always wanted to do was write. Uh, but I spoke once to a rabbi. I was out here in California working at a summer camp. And uh, this rabbi said, well, what do you want to write about? And I said, the truth is, it's not that I know anything. I've just always wanted to write. Wow. And he said, well, why don't you go to rabbinical school for a year? You'll get a great subject. Um, and so I went really on a whim. And I thought, if I don't like it, I'll leave. And I was thoroughly captivated by it. So I stayed and here I am. Wow. We would love to just dig a little bit uh, deeper into a little bit, some of that evolution, that metamorphosis. Uh, we are just so taken um, uh, by your, one of your latest books, uh, Why Faith Matters. John and I just both devoured it. And uh, in the beginning of that, something that's so important to so many listeners here, when you're talking about um, faith to doubt, to, to faith, this kind of transition that you experienced, um, a little bit more back from like your childhood and your early, you know, infatuation with people like Bertrand Russell and just kind of how that all evolved into you being uh, Rabbi Wolpe. I mean, that's just uh, such a fascinating story. I wonder if you could go into it a little bit for those unfamiliar. Sure. Um, I, when I was in high school, I was a pretty vociferous atheist and it was partly, I think, in reaction to my upbringing and uh, that is, you know, if you're going to rebel and your father's a rabbi, that's a good way to go. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But also, but also it was because I, I fell under the spell of Bertrand Russell, who was the most lucid, persuasive, reasonable atheist I, I read to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my father, in fact, bought me some of his books, uh, which was a very smart move to show me that he wasn't afraid of this kind of challenge or this kind of intellectual interest. And really two things happened to me that, that changed me somewhat. One was, I remember, um, I once, uh, was working again at a summer camp this time on the East coast. And a rabbi said to me, what are you reading? And I said, Bertrand Russell. And he said, well, I'm glad to see you're reading him. And I said, why? He said, how old are you, David? I said, I'm 17. He goes, well, better you should grow out of him than grow into him. <laughs> True. And I, thought, what a, I remembered that line, and I thought, well, I wonder what he means that I'll grow out of him. And in fact, as I got older, and I started to read about Russell's life, which was extremely messy, uh, to say the least, mm. I realized that this facade of perfect reasonableness is not, in fact, the way human beings function, and it's not really how they see the world, even though it might be the way they see the world on paper, Mm. and that we are much more complex creatures and much deeper creatures than than a a syllogism would suggest. And so I began to have an experience of looking at religious people not as weak people who need crutches, um, but as people who see a dimension of reality that maybe I was closed off to as a teenager who knew everything. That is so good. I think that's so um, ubiquitous uh, for a lot of the people that listen to this show and other shows like this and uh, just are, you know, curious people. You know, it's the curious people that find themselves often in very unusual places. Yes. I think that it's a common thing to... One of the things that has impressed me more and more, and you see this, for example, in politics today very much, is when someone has a point of view, they tend to invest more and more and more in it to the point where listening to another point of view becomes a threat. It's not, it's not a challenge or an opportunity. It's a threat. And, and so I always really, I I mean, I think about my own experience and I think about how many times I've changed my mind about things in the course of my life. And I try not to be dogmatic Mm. about the world. One of the things that I love at the very, very beginning of your book, um, in fact, page 10 at the very outset, you kind of reframe the question um, in terms of what it is to ask yourself, am I religious? And in fact, what you say is, 
the question, when properly asked, is an invitation to a journey and not an answer. I just love that, and I wonder if you can unpack that for us yes. a little. Well, I always assume that somebody who is who searches for a greater reality than you can see has the religious impulse. And it might not necessarily express itself in, in this or that organized religion, although we can talk about the difference between spiritual and religious in a minute. But, but I really do think that that questioning spirit and, the, and what, what your podcast exemplifies, that is, you're not there to give people a particular worldview, but to go on a journey with them. And, and I do think that that's, I mean, that's the central metaphor of my tradition, after all, is these people, these children of the wilderness, there's, there's these Israelites who are freed from slavery, they don't know where they're going, they're journeying, and the point is that they discover together. And so I, I think that that's our, that's our common human journey, even though it sounds almost like a cliche. In fact, some cliches are cliches because they're so true. That is, I mean, John and I were just excited just even listening to you say that because it's just so true. And, uh, you know, bringing in uh, your tradition and, and what, you know, what you find in, in your scriptures um, back to that worldview and uniting it like that, that's, that's what we love so much about your work. And that's what we, uh, we want others to discover in your work. In that, in that same part of the book, you use this quote from Milton that I had never heard before where Milton says, a man may, may be a heretic in the truth, and if he believes things only because his pastor says so or the assembly de so determines without knowing any other reason, though his belief be true, yet the very truth he holds becomes his heresy. And just the importance of, you, you go on to say that faith begins with a question and the importance of questions. Can you just talk a little bit about how as a rabbi, as somebody that people look to you to open the scriptures, to proclaim the mysteries of God, um, how you use the importance of questions to invigorate people, enliven people. Um, why are questions so important to you? Well, part of it is that, you know, answers end conversations and questions start them. So that's the first thing. It depends what you want. If what you want is to hear that, you know, click shot of the end of the discussion, then, then you give an answer. Um, but I mean, it's almost like when a child says, is this a good thing or not? And the best answer usually that a parent can give is what do you think? Wow. Because that's an invitation to a conversation. But I remember reading, and I think I tell the story. I know I do in one book on maybe in, in, in why faith matters of the physicist, I, I Robbie, who, when asked who was the most important intellectual influence in his life, he said, my mother. And they said, why? And he said, because when I used to come home from school, she would say to me, did you ask any good questions today? And from that, I learned, he said, that that was the key. And so I, as a physicist, what I do is I interrogate nature. That is, I put questions to the world. And so I think that it's always um, a more interesting conversation when you have a question as well as an answer to offer, because otherwise it's, it's not a conversation. It's, uh, it's a multiple choice to examine words. I love what you say uh, also kind of in, in regards to what we're talking about here is, is you, you talk about mystery and the acceptance of mystery as not being an act of resignation, but an act of humility. And I, I absolutely just, I, I had to put the book down for a second because I just love what you said about you make this distinction between mystery and a puzzle. And I would right. love for you to talk about that for a second. I always, I always assume that if people think that the world is figure-outable, we just don't have enough information, or we just haven't built a big enough computer, then they think of the world as a puzzle and a place that can be figured out, and the pieces will all come together, and we're just, you know, we're just not there yet. But if you think of the world as a mystery, that is essentially there is at the heart of it something that's not susceptible to reason. That then, then you're in the world that I believe in and understand. And even I, when people ask about God, for example, I always tell them that I, I, when I speak to the high school students, I say, listen, when you were two years old, could you understand a 14-year-old? And they all say, no, of course. And I say, but when you're two years old, it's not just that you don't understand a 14-year-old. You don't even understand what it is you don't understand. You're that <laughs> far away. 
right? A two-year-old doesn't know I'm missing what adolescence is all about. Now, in the Jewish tradition, and I think in most traditions, the difference between God, whatever God is, I'm not even saying whomever, I'm just saying whatever God is, the difference between God and human beings is much greater than the difference between a two-year-old and a 14-year-old. So I always assume that, that being humble in the face of the, the grandeur of everything that is, is sort of the natural position that we should take. And, and even if you think there is no God and there's no transcendence, so let's say you take a perfectly naturalistic view of the world, then you assume that your mind was created by evolution, just like your arm was and your eye was and so on. Mm-hmm. And we know that your eye only sees certain colors of the spectrum and your arm only reaches so far and your ear only hears certain registers. So why would you assume that your mind, which was jerry-rigged by evolution like the rest of you, in fact can penetrate to the secrets of the world? I don't understand the, the hubris of human beings that think that their minds, this is the perfect instrument. It's not. We miss a lot. We make a lot of mistakes. And those are the only the ones that we know. Just imagine how much we don't know that we don't know. No, well, I mean, so well these played. are all, obviously, these are, they're, they're very, I just want people to be more open to the mm-hmm. possibilities and also to the chance that they can discover different ways of, of looking at all of these questions. And I think, and you guys, I mean, certainly you guys have had this experience in the people that you've spoken to. I think that the greatest religious spirits all have this sense of humility that they teach to us, mm. which is there's so much that we don't begin to know. Yes. It's generally in our smaller selves that we're sure we know everything. Oh, man, that is so... While we're on the subject, because it's just such an important um, arena, it's just such an important theme of the conversations that John and I like to have with people on here, um, being a rabbi, being somebody that... Um, has to, you know, week after week, day after day, go to the Torah and, and pull out, you know, things and make them fresh for people and, and invite them into conversations. In, in the context of mystery, what are some of your favorite places? Um, obviously, it's littered, but what are some of your favorite places to go where you've seen God as this beautiful mystery? Well, so first of all, I actually, I mean, I have a, uh, an article coming out today or tomorrow in, in the Los Angeles Jewish Journal about how important it is to get back outside. You know, my synagogue is an inside building. And, and when you say, what are some of the most important places to go? I was thinking almost literally like Mm -hmm. physically beautiful places are places where you go. I mean, mountains, forests, seas, you know, one of the things that I think is good about modern worship is that people are returning to the world that has, you know, when you look up at the lights of a city, you see the workings of human beings. Mm -hmm. When you go out into nature and you look up at the stars, you see the workings of God. And so I think it's really important to reconnect with the actual physical, natural world. But I also, as somebody who grew up around books, I find um, tremendous inspiration and uplift in the written word and the spoken word. And so I, when I find in the stories of the Torah, in, in, many of the, in many of the books even, that people don't generally know so well, um, like the book of Ecclesiastes, and I just finished teaching the book of Job, that people tend not to read as often as they read other books, even though maybe somewhere along the line across their path. There's uh, wisdom because everything, after all, has changed since those books were written. I mean, language and land and technology and everything except the human heart. And so they speak to the human heart very powerfully and very deeply. Well, well, let's follow that train of thought because one of the things that Adam and I both really enjoyed about this book is that um, you even look at, I mean, this book's got a ton in it um, for for being a book that's not, you know, like a J.R.L. Tolkien novel, you know. Um, (laughs) It's got a ton of of really, really good information in it. But one of the, the... sections of the book you talk about is, is kind of how to approach, uh, you know, scripture and how to, how, how to, um, 
take away the, the deeper truths uh, without necessarily taking it literally, which is also a problem that we have within Christianity is this idea of, you know, the Bible is, is meant to be taken literally. And, and, and that's something right. that, you know, we, we fight against on a, on a regular basis. So maybe you could talk a, a, about that you know, within the context of Judaism a little. Please. Yeah, I think that it's, the Jewish tradition is an interpretive tradition. That is, the, generally the Torah means what it is that the tradition says it means. And so from the beginning, um, there wasn't as much literalism as you might expect from a religious tradition. Uh, so, for, I mean, you look in the, in the Talmud, for example, and it says the famous phrase, an eye for an eye, means monetary compensation. It doesn't literally mean an eye for an eye. Now, most people would say, well, then why does it say an eye for an eye? And the rabbis give 10 different reasons why that's supposed to be a metaphor. So once you start looking at the Torah for what, what goes beneath the surface, um, what is it that this can teach me about my life? How do I understand these stories as both examples and counterexamples? Because some of them are stories of things that you ought not to do. Um, and, and how do I extract from it something that is more than just don't eat this with that? Um, you start to really unpack a world because uh, the history of the interpretation of the Torah is the history of looking at successively deeper levels of what words can mean. And in that sense, you can think of it sort of, the way that religions should teach is the way that a quarterback throws a football, that is, ahead of where the receiver is. Whoa. Because presumably, in your life, you're growing, and you want to grow into the lesson, and you want to be later. There are a lot of things that people have said to me that I didn't understand till 10 years after. But, but that's what spiritual education should be about. And it's, uh, yeah, for me, so I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, bivocational sales rep slash teaching pastor at my church. And uh, my favorite thing to do is, is show people, you know, how it's, it's pulling us ahead. You know, it's, it's not yeah. what you'd think. Yes. Oh man. Lo lo so, so think, I mean, for example, um, I, here's, here's a, a beautiful example of the way in which, uh, scripture can be used. And I'm, I'm going to quote my father because this was his, uh, this was his teaching, and I think it's a lovely one, and it gives an example. Jacob cheats his brother Esau and has to run away from home because he cheated him out of the birthright. Mm -hmm. and, and years later, years later, um, Esau, he finds out Esau is coming with 400 men, and Esau had told him that he's going to kill him. So he assumes his brother is coming to kill him. He has this wrestling at night with the angel, he confronts his brother. I'm abbreviating the story and leaving out a lot of wonderful stuff, but we will do that for the moment. He sees his brother, and instead of killing him, they fall on each other and they weep. And I remember uh, years ago in a sermon, my father said, so what changed? What was it that led Esau and Jacob to weep instead of to fight? And his answer was, the difference between the modern world and the ancient world is you can't go a single day in the modern world without seeing yourself a hundred times. There's a mirror everywhere. We're constantly looking at ourselves. We always know what we look like. But if you think about the ancient story of Narcissus, where the word narcissism comes from, he falls in love with himself because he sees himself in a pool of water, because that was basically the only place where you could see yourself. There weren't mirrors, which required silver and were very expensive. And, and in a pool of water, as you know, you don't really see yourself that clearly. But Esau and Jacob were twins. They weren't identical twins, but they were twins. And they haven't seen each other for 20 years. And then they look at each other, and they see how old the other person has gotten. And they realize how old they are, and how many years they've wasted in hatred and bitterness. And so instead of fighting, they cry. And there's a story that on the surface is just a story about two brothers who reconcile, but is so much deeper. And if you look into the scripture and you understand the world, the world that it came from, it's moving in ways that are inconceivable if you read it the way you read the newspaper. Everyone.
Everyone's got their own set of troubles Everyone's got their own set of blues Everyone's got their own set of struggles Walk a mile in another man's shoes Never heard that before and that is absolutely beautiful your, Isn't that a, yeah Your father must have been some, some teacher He was, yeah, he was great Man, great. in the um, in that same chapter, because you know uh, a lot of our listeners are coming from either a non-religious or maybe a, a confused or conflicted Christian or a post-Christian or a transitional Christian or a spiritual seeker kind of perspective. But uh, mm-hmm. script, scriptures, uh, by and large, uh, across the traditions, seem to be this um, great difficulty to the modern person. And one of the things yeah. that you, you point out in, in your book, Why Faith Matters, which everybody needs to get and read immediately, they'll enjoy it. They'll, <laughs> they'll not only enjoy it so much, it's just, it's just such a well-written book, content-wise, the, the, the style, the voice, um, how concise it is. I just I cannot give it high enough praise. Uh, and you say something that I don't think I've ever heard anybody really say before, the way you said it. Um, you talk about in your, in your chapter on Scripture— um, Walt Whitman, uh, old Uncle Walt, Walt Whitman wrote that in order for there to be great books, there have to be great readers. And for a book to remain powerful throughout generations, you say it cannot have a single meaning. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, any classic, forget even scripture, but any classic is a book that contains endless, it, it can always be reread. And when you read it at different ages, it means different things. And that is certainly true here. When you read scripture as a parent, it's very different from when you read it as a child. So true. And, and when you read it older and you understand things about the world, even things that you can't express, but you just understand things about the world that are different from what you thought earlier, then the same story appears in a different light and a deeper light. And so, for example, that story about brothers and fighting and reconciling, now that I've been a rabbi for many years, and I've seen families torn apart by the most trivial, as well as sometimes by serious fights, um, I appreciate that on a completely different level, on how I realize now how easy it is for a single word or a single fight or or a dispute over money to tear a family apart for, for years and years and years. I didn't know that when I was younger. I didn't know how easy it was for families to fray. Um, so they do, it deepens with you. When you live with, uh, with great teachings, then they grow with you and they allow you to understand them on, on, ever, um, on ever more expansive levels. So I could quote, story after story that I understand now differently from the time that I was a kid. And it's one of the reasons why I can get up every year and speak about the same sections of the Torah. And I don't say the same thing that I said the year before. Oh, man. One of the things that I think that you do really well in this book as well is, um, and and this isn't really necessarily a topic that we've talked about in great detail or great length on, on our podcast, but um, kind of the the counterpoint to atheism and and you kind of um, your response to to atheism and some of the atheist uh, writers out there is one of the best uh, written uh, responses that I've, I think I've come across to be quite honest and one of the things I think that you point out that I didn't even consider previously is that um, based on the kind of the two main arguments that atheists seem to have uh, in terms of uh, arguments against faith you say, even if religion came solely from fear, that says nothing as to its truth. Um, and and I, I just thought that was so beautiful. I wondered if you could kind of talk about that a little bit. Sure. One of the things that atheists will always say is your religion makes you feel better, which, first of all, that's not always true. Sometimes my religion makes me feel worse. Um, but second of all, that says nothing about whether it's true or not. There are a lot of things in the world that make me feel better that are true. You know, it makes me feel better that 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 my friend is loyal. That happens to be true. It makes me feel better that, that, you know, forests are lovely and flowers smell good, but that happens to be true. Um, so the fact that something is good for you doesn't make it untrue. Uh, 
The question is, do you have good reasons to believe it? And, and I think you have lots of good reasons to believe that there's a God in the world, and those reasons are partly rational, but they're also, also partly experiential. And they have a lot to do with the way your sort of your basic orientation to the world, um, more than than a simple logical argument. Although I still do think that, given even given what science is, and science is an expectation that the world will operate according to certain discoverable rules, and the fact that the world does operate according to discoverable rules, at least to me, suggests that it was set up to operate according to discoverable rules. Well, that doesn't sound like a random happening. But this is, as you know, I mean, look, part of the reason that I wrote this book was uh, there were two motivations. One was because I was really upset by the caricature of religion that I heard from some of the atheist writers, whom I came to know well and I like, but I still think that they they don't understand what religion is about. And the other is because I had myself, as you know, gone through um, a couple of experiences um, of illness, and, and I found that religion really did matter to me and to the people uh, around me, not the way that you think, not, oh, my illness is fine because I'm religious, or it's okay because I'm going to get the world to come even if I do die but because it gave me a certain sort of strength and hope and resilience that life was meaningful. And even if I was gone tomorrow, it wasn't all in vain. And that's a very powerful thing um, that I think speaks deeply to the human soul. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I, I find I'm giving you long answers to short questions. No, this is great. This is <laughs> great. It could be longer. You yeah. could just keep going. Absolutely. Well, I wonder, I would love to know your, your, your thoughts on this, but, um, I, I find, you know, uh, atheistic literature extraordinarily useful, um, just in terms of, of, um, you know, finding, you know, justifiable critiques and, and things that I think that we should discuss. Um, yep. however, and I wonder if you find this to be the same within Judaism, I find this to be true within Christianity. I find that the, the version of Christianity that they are debating against is oftentimes what I see as a, a caricature of Christianity and, and one that I would even say, yeah, I don't agree with that either. Is, is that the case with, with, uh, their critiques of oh, Judaism? Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of times I was, I, I was almost surprised that that would be, that that would be what they would assume that I believe. Um, and so I debated Hitchens, I don't know, four or five times and our debates changed because he could no longer say, and of course you believe this nonsense because he knew I didn't. Um, and, and I think that that's part of, really part of the education of the non-religious is what real religion is and isn't. Mm. And here I think sometimes we're badly served by, by certain people in the religious world who, yeah. who speak about faith in a way that none of us and probably most of your listeners would feel comfortable with or, or recognize. Um, but I think the best way to put it is that that deep faith is um, flexible and wise and thoughtful and humble and devoted to goodness. Uh, one of the things that I don't think that religion gets nearly enough credit for is that if you go around the world, most of the sort of day-to-day goodness that charities are doing in the world have a religious basis. The largest aid group in the world comes out of an evangelical group in Seattle. Um, it's the, in the United States, it's the single greatest aid agency there is. And when I remember I went to Haiti and I was working on an orphanage and everybody I met there was a Christian aid worker. And I thought to myself, why is it that nobody says, you know, I may have this problem with religion or that problem with religion, but there are these people from this, I think it was Mennonite church that have been down here for 10 years, Mm -hmm. just building homes for poor people because they think that's what God wants them to do. I mean, why don't, why isn't that better known? Are you talking Um, about world vision? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I thought you might have been. I, I, I listened to your podcast, and I thought I'd heard you say that before. And World Vision is phenomenal. If anybody on the show wants a great place to send you know, some money, maybe you're not going right. to a, a church or a place of faith right now. That's a, gr- <laughs> that's a great place. Yes. And, and I mean, I see this. I went on, on a trip with American Jewish World Service, which does similar work. And we went to, to Thailand. And, and it's amazing the kind of work they do in these incredibly impoverished villages and let me tell you a beautiful story. So there's a, there's a woman who's a, who's a Beverly Hills lawyer who grew up at my synagogue. And she and another rabbi named Harold Scholes, who passed away a few years ago, started something called Jewish World Watch. And it's exactly what you would expect. They go, she's been to the Congo, I don't know how many times, and they bring solar cookers and they feed people and, the, and, and all the stuff that workers do. So she was in the Congo in a, in a, medical tent for women who had been abused in unspeakable ways during the civil wars in the Sudan. I mean, just horrible, horrible. And she's there and she's tending to the wounds of this woman. And the woman looks at her and says, and obviously she doesn't look like anybody else there, says to her, why are you here? And she didn't want to say to her, I'm here because I'm Jewish, because Jewish didn't mean anything to this woman. Never heard of a Jew. So this is what she said. She said, I'm here because I'm a member of an ancient tribe. And in my tribe, we believe that every person is an image of God. Mm. And that's why I'm here. Mm. Wow. And I thought, why doesn't everyone know this about deeply religious people? That they really do, that, that that's our shared creed. I mean, mm. you could say that for any faith. So... I think that that's a message that needs to go out to the world. It's a strange and lovely world It don't make no sense to me There are a few things I am sure of That is so good. Uh, man, I agree. I wish I could hear you just sermonize about that for a little bit longer. <laughs> I really, I really do. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's so underutilized in in communities of faith to talk about how our our image is not on a coin or in an idol or in a, you know a work of art somewhere, but it is this multiplicitous, infinite um, right. face exactly. of our na- of our neighbor that just never ends. That's right. That's beautifully put. Oh, man, I love I love that. Um, want to get on to just a, a couple more questions. We want to give some, sure. some people in a, just an insight into some other things that you teach on. Uh, and another thing that's really difficult for a community um, that's wrestling with uh, maybe who they used to be spiritually or they're transitioning. Um, obviously, you know, who is God is a big one. You know, scripture is a big one. Um, but prayer is a really difficult one. And I, I just love, there's so many good things you have to say on prayer. Um, one of them, just to kind of prime your pump a little bit, is you talk about deep prayer being an experience like music. Or love. Yes. Yeah. Could you just talk about so, that a little bit? So, yeah, there are really two things um, that I wanted to say about prayer that I think are important. One is exactly what you said, which is sometimes we think of prayer too mechanically. I ask for this, I get that. But in fact, prayer is like poetry, which is an experience of beauty and of depth and of connection to the people around you. Um, it's, it is... Uh, it's an experiential thing. It's not a technique. Um, and, and it's also, by the way, something that you get better at. It really is. Mm. The more you pray, the more you understand how prayer works in you. And the analogy that I give in, in the book, which really changed how I thought about prayer, was from a 17th century rabbi who said, if you're standing on the banks of a river, and you see someone pulling their boat to the shore, if you don't really understand about mechanics or motion, you might think that they're pulling the shore to the boat. And that's the mistake, <laughs> and that's the mistake that people make about prayer. He said they pray, and they think what they're doing is they're pulling God to them. He says, but if you pray properly, what you're doing is you're pulling yourself towards God. And if you think about it that way, then you don't, then even if you're praying for a specific result, the point of your prayer is less about the result than about your coming closer 
to whatever God is in this world and trying to adjust your soul and knowing that whatever the world doles out, you and other people will be able to endure it because you are attuned. And it might be painful and it might be hard and you might not be able to explain why it happens, but that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about understanding, acceptance, closeness, depth, and love. One of the things you talk about later in your book that I thought was was really interesting was you talk about a time, you recount a time where you were um, receiving treatment for your, for your cancer and you still find yourself asking profound questions about the existence and, and nature of God. And after this is after becoming a rabbi. Uh, why is it do you think that religious leaders deal with the same hardships of life and yet we have this um, kind of unrealistic expectation um, that they should always hold firm and never doubt? Um, I think that people feel more comfortable when, when other people know better than they do. We like expertise. Um, and I think that it makes us a little bit unsettled when people don't, uh, don't know really clearly what it is. And that's partly, I think, from a little bit of a misunderstanding about religion. And it forces preachers to be more certain than they are. Because, you know, people are always asking you questions and they always want clear answers. Um, but I think you have to resist that temptation and, and be a guide as opposed to an answer book. Oh, um, so good. That's better. One of the, we're, we're kind of starting to run a little bit shorter on time. So just a couple questions left. Um, you know, as a rabbi, uh, counseling people, uh, guiding them, as you say, uh, there's a lot of people listening to this podcast um, that find themselves in a transitory period. You know, John and I both do in a lot of ways. We, we now kind of identify as those who uh, are very comfortable just being identified as somebody who is in process, on the journey, struggling. Um, but right. for a lot of people, initially, that's very uh, alarming and disturbing. And, you know, I thought that this was a destination and not a journey. So uh, for those that are out there that are just struggling, struggling to believe um, what are some of the things that you like to, to point them to in Scripture? What are the things you like to say to them? Um, what would you say to those people? So the first thing that I would say to them is that it's very... Um, it's really important to understand that the worship of human beings, that is the idea that somebody has all the answers, no matter how learned they are, no matter how authoritative they appear. That's a dangerous kind of worship that borders on idolatry. Mm. At, and that doesn't mean you have to distrust people. It just means that you have to understand that in you is a lot of what it is that you need. And other people can help you along, but they can't spoon feed you exactly what it is that you need for your journey. And we're all seeking answers, but I always, the thing that I point to in scripture is the fact that the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they constitute the Torah in Judaism. When you finish those books, you're still in the wilderness. It's true that the Israelites get into the land in the book of Joshua, but the book of Joshua isn't part of what we call the Pentateuch or the, the five books of Moses. And that means that the promised land is always a promise. Even when we get into the promised land, it's not this perfect place that we're told it's going to be. It's always a place of struggle and difficulty and so on. So anybody who thinks that life's problems are going to be resolved, or if someone would only give them the key, everything would be fine, needs to go back and look at the Torah and realize that the wilderness is where we live. And the key is to live there together, to live there with a guide, to live there with a map, and to live there with a community. Oh. And so the Asking of questions is part of faith. It's not, I don't think of it as, as opposite of faith. I, I think of Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, who's a great Hasidic rabbi. He used to say that he was a moon man, that his faith waxed and waned. You know, sometimes it was brighter and sometimes it was darker. And that's okay to have those movements, to have doubts, to think of your doubts as part of your search just as, you know, your moments of distance and moments of closeness are part of your love. That's not a bad thing. That's, 
what it is to be a person. Mm. Oh, man. Um, Adam's got a, a final question for you, but before we get there, um, one, of the, one of the main reasons, obviously, that we wanted to really have you on uh, was to be part of this, this series we're doing currently um, on religious pluralism and, and how can we uh, better foster dialogue between, uh, between religions, between faiths, um, especially in the, in the current climate we find ourselves in. Um, and we ended up liking your book so much that we went a completely different direction when we were writing our <laughs> questions. But, <laughs> um, but just well, we can always do it again. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Done. we'd love to. We <laughs> Anytime gonna, you want. We were going to ask you. <laughs> um, but before we let you go, and before Adam uh, wraps this up with his last question, um, we, we figured we'd give you an opportunity to um, maybe dispel some some misconceptions that that people have um, in terms of Judaism, and if there's anything sure. Anything that, that sticks out to you? Um, so I would say that the, the principal misconception about Judaism is that, for, for Christians, that it ended with, with the birth of Jesus. Um, in fact, the most, important, the most important developments in some ways in Judaism were the Talmud, what, what you call the Pharisees, we call the rabbis, and we think of them as great religious heroes, although they're not pers- portrayed that way in the New Testament. But the New Testament, the other thing is, I, I think it's important for Christians to know that the New Testament was kind of a, it was a family quarrel. The first Christians, after all, were Jews, and they were fighting with other Jews who disagreed with them about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so you know what family fights are like. They're not always nice. <laughs> Unfortunately, that in the New Testament, that family fight got th- frozen for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, but it's important for Christians to recognize that, I mean, Jesus was a practicing Jew and that Jewish tradition is something that they take nourishment from. Um, and that, uh, and also I think it's important for Jews to realize that the Christian world today is a very, very different world from the antagonisms of the past. Mm-hmm. And for us to feel grateful and, and blessed to live in a world in which Jews and Christians can have such close um, relations and discussions and and sort of mutual inspiration. Um, that's a wonderful thing, and for most of our history, it wasn't that way. Can I just say, um, just personally, Rabbi Wolpe, that um, one of the things that profoundly deepened my experience of spirituality to a level that um, I didn't even know was possible was when I started to, to read and, and uh, engage with thinkers that respected the Jewishness of our Jesus mm. and, and, and took it to a, a very, very deep level, the best that they possibly could, um, without any need to antagonize, without any need to um, delineate or separate or, or anything, but, but as, you know, as, as Jewish as we could possibly understand the context of, of what the tradition that we follow, um, that's when really I started to really see how deep and how rich, and I think you even point that out, and I've heard you talk, um, I listen to your podcast, and I've heard you talk how, um, how rich and how exciting it is for people to hear an ancient answer to, to the human's questions. And um, obviously, without being Judeo-Christian, you can't really be Christian, <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, that's, you know, the it, we spring from the same source. Yeah. So that's a that is a good thing for for people to know. Um and and there is uh I think a tremendous amount that we have to learn from one another and that we have both to learn together. So so yeah, and you know, in that vein, I just have one uh, last little question. Um, I want to quote the end of your book because I think it's very telling. And you know, whether you did it on purpose or not, or whether it was a happy accident or you know whatever, um, your your book ends with the word love. And and to quote um, to quote loosely from it, you you, you say faith um, is an achievement of seeking, uh, questioning, yearning, reasoning, hoping. It's the gift of God who fashioned this world, whose goodness sustains it and whose teachings could save it if only we, believers and deniers both, would listen, would love. So love is the last yeah. word of your book, and I think um, I'd love to hear just some of your thoughts on why you closed with that. 
I closed with that because I really do believe that love is an enacted emotion. That is, love is not what you feel. Love is what you do with what you feel. If somebody says to you, I love you, and they treat you badly, you are perfectly entitled to say you don't love me. You may feel a great deal towards me, but it's not love. Because love, and I think that this is true in Judaism, but it's also true as I read Jesus in Jesus' rendition of what love is. Love is the way that you act towards people whom you love. So when I talk about love, I don't mean just that we should have nice feelings towards each other. Because I, unfortunately, as, as have you, I've seen people who claim they love, who act in a way that I would not want to be treated. By love, I mean to act lovingly towards one another. And, and in my own experience, very often, when you act lovingly towards someone you don't love, you come to love them. Sometimes the feeling follows the action as opposed to the action following the feeling. Mm. So if we had a world in which acting lovingly was the standard, we would have a much, much better world. I can think of no better way to close. <laughs> our, our first. Thank you so much. Our first time together. That's right. Yes, it was a great pleasure. Thank you both. Thank yes, you. Thank and, you uh, so much. It's an honor, Rabbi Wolpe. And, and before we let you off the hook, um, sure. It, one of the things that that uh, gives us great pleasure in doing this podcast is obviously we, um, as we uh, and Adam and I are on our, on our own journeys and uh, and trying to broaden our horizons and and uh, read more and listen to more uh, folks across different spectrums. Um, we're, we're we're hopeful that the people who are listening um, will will be able to, to dive into your work. And so where can we send them? Uh, what's the best place to keep on top of what you're up to, uh, hear your podcast and that sort of thing? Um, I would say the best place for me is Facebook and Twitter, both Rabbi Wolpe. Um, and there you'll find my classes, links. I'm, I do have a podcast. It's called Off the Pulpit. Yep. That has all my sermons and, and all my classes on it. So, good. so any of those places would work. Well, we'll we'll put all those in the show notes and uh, definitely send people your direction. Your Job series Thank blew you. my mind, by the way. Blew my mind. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for giving some of your time. Um, this was an absolute pleasure for us. We can't, we can't wait to do it again. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs> Adam's trying to catch me again. I always, I always do this. <laughs> rabbi freaking Wolpe. Holy cow. And he will be the first official rabbi that we've had on the show. Do you know what I love about this is I guarantee you the 90% of our listeners, and this is nothing against our, li- you know, I love you guys. I'm with you on this. You probably haven't ever heard of this guy. No. And it's one of those things that um, he's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And because we're all in this like sort of evangelical, like, white American Christian bubble or whatever. And we, you know, we all read in some kind of a confirmation bias, whether you have a a new echo chamber or an old echo chamber or whatever. Um, Hearing this level of teacher, you know, uh, this, this level rabbi, you probably have never heard it before. And the crazy thing is, uh, and this kind of hit, hit me while we were talking to him and while we were talking to rabbi green, uh, another rabbi that we have that's coming up later. In the middle of it, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's funny how quickly, how often we forget that Jesus was a Jew, (laughs) right? And that like this whole book, this whole book we call the Bible was written by Jews, essentially. Yeah. And, and like, why would we not consult a rabbi when we're talking about specifically the Old Testament, you know? Like, why would we not, you know, and, and just that story he told, um, Jacob and Esau. Oh my gosh. Dude. Like it, it, it reminded me of like Shia and, uh, oh, yeah. some of the other guys we've had on. There's a richness to it. Yeah. Where they, t- they, they recount a story that we've heard a million times before, but all of a sudden there's this new, there's this new angle to it. And you're like, Oh wow. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and what's incredible is most, um, people that have like maybe grown up in the church, um, and, and found, you know, later on maybe a distaste for it or whatever. 
a lot of times it, it came down to the fact that it, um, it didn't hold up to the questioning. It lacked depth. It lacked richness. And it's probably because most of the, the teachers that are teaching you well-intended as they may be very well-intended and doing what they know and doing what they love and doing whatever it is for where they're at um, are probably relying on teachings that have only been around for maybe the last couple hundred years because, you know, unless you're, unless you're Catholic, you know, right. maybe you've got some extra time on there, but like the richness of the Judeo Christian tradition goes all the way back. And those roots are still pulling up the best nutrients yeah. on that ancient soil. And, and hearing a rabbi talk about that kind of stuff, you immediately feel like you're being transported to something ancient and perennial and, and mysterious and wonderful and just rich. Yeah. And it's funny. I was, I was reading an article um, earlier today, actually, it was a Pew study um, where they had, they had taken this poll, this survey, uh, this re- religious survey. And, and specifically I was looking at the, the, the portion that was directed towards millennials. Right. So like, <laughs> you know, cause that, that's, we're, we're I think we're technically not millennials. I think we're technically generation Xers. Who knows? Who knows? Depends on which pie chart you're looking at, but I feel like I have like a foot in the millennial camp and like a foot in yeah. whatever's before that. Me too. I was born in the late seventies. So it's kind of like, I'm kind of teetering between the two, but one of the, the most interesting uh, statistics was that, uh, millennials by and large still believe in God at, to some extent. Oh yeah. You, you were telling me about this. Yeah. 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 Which is very interesting. Like very, a very low percentage of them claim to be atheists. What right. we consider atheists. Um, and yet most of them, uh, do not, uh, ascribe to any particular denomination and they have no attachment to any, um, like church organization. structure or organization. Yeah. 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 Which is fascinating, uh, and, and the the number one reason was not because you know millennials are, and we tend to stereotype them. That it's not because they're lazy or because they they're apathetic or or uh, uneducated or any of those things. Quite the opposite. It's because they're bored. Mm. And 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 uh, one of the follow up uh, points that they made in this article was the fact that um, you know the younger generation of ministers are are just poorly educated. And so they're just not getting the depth that yeah. these prior generations were, were benefiting from. Yep. And I can't help but think when listening to like a Wolpe, it's like if, if this younger generation had the opportunity to hear stuff like this, how could you not be excited and, and drawn into stuff like this? I, I think you're making a really, really good point that we're all really, really hungry for that level of depth. And it is available. Like, you know, this book that some of us are, you know, struggling with, you know, the Bible, whether we're struggling with it or we've outright rejected it or we're evolving in our approach to it. A lot of that centers around the fact that the, the, the shallow answers or the, you know, the one dimensional answers that we were given that are a full stop, they, they don't open up into something deeper. It's just like, well, it's just this and that's it. Right. And you just stop there. Um, the rejection comes from, I think that really shallow approach to these things when at the end of the day, this book that we're talking about is ancient and mysterious and it's a labyrinth and, and there's paradoxes and there's different interpretations. Like, you know, like Rob talks, Rob Bell talks about in his new book, how, how the rabbis talk about how the, the Torah is a gem with 70 faces and you just keep, yeah. tur- you just keep turning it and turning it and turning it and talking about it and talking about it and turning it. And, and it's like, yeah, I want that. Yeah. Yeah, I want that. That's <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Can we do that? Can it, we can we not do this like full stop? Like that's the answer and you learn it in Bible school and you memorize it and you pass the test and whatever. It's like, that's so boring. Yeah. Like that's it to the mystery of the divine and life and humanity and, and all that stuff. It's just an answer that you have to learn. So surfacy. I'm out. Yes. <laughs> I'm out. I think John and I are going to convert to Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> Radical Judaism. I, it's funny too, because I think Rob also uh, makes this point and I'd never thought of it in this context before, but he, he compares it to like, uh, you would never describe a piece of art like, well, it's a piece of paper with some red and yellow paint on it, you yeah. know, yeah. because you'd be, you'd be absolutely just butchering the, the level of beauty and depth to this piece of art. Yeah. What's know? in it? Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, that's so much more interesting. Like, what was the painter thinking? What, yeah. were, what were they going through when they, when they created this beautiful piece of art? You yeah. Know? 
it's like, you know, there's so much more to it than just standing there and describing specifically what it's made of. Right. You know, like we got our, we got our boy Jay heavy in the, in the house, in the easy right now. Our official photographer. Our official photographer. And he's snapping some pictures and stuff like that. And like, if Jared, if I looked at one of your pictures and I was like, yeah, it's a girl. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a fair point. It's a fair point. It's a tree. Yeah. It's a tree. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a it's a guy holding a guitar. Yeah, there you, you go. know what I mean. Like, and that's it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a dude. Yeah, it's like there's ah, oh, we're just ripping ourselves off. Truly, it's uh, it's an injustice and one that we hope to correct. <laughs> and apparently, Jared doesn't have any pictures of girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you guys couldn't hear in the background, he said, "Why would you guys assume that I have pictures of girls on my camera? <laughs> Why wouldn't you, Jared? That's a better question." <laughs> Why would you not? <laughs> the, of course, it did sound creepy. You got their permission. It's fine. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Photographers can, if they're not careful, send off the creepy vibe. We don't want true. people to get the wrong idea. I'm glad you. I'm glad you ironed that out. I did see. I did see the Netflix show Thirteen Reasons Why. We can't go there right now. And there was a creepy photographer. We could do a whole episode. Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's a little too heavy. But, yeah, the depth, the richness. Um, guys, This at the end of the day, wrapping up this uh, debrief that John and I like to do, um, now only at the end of the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, iTunes Reviews. Yeah. Um, but wrapping this up, like, I think that this is the, the whole point of deconstruction or, you know, whatever we're calling this now at this point, is, oh, there's more. There's always more. So, keep opening it up. Like, isn't that almost Derrida? Like you think you get justice. You don't get, get back inside and open it up. You think you get love. You don't get back inside and open it up. You think you get education. You think you get government. You think you get God. You think you get the Bible. You think, no, you don't get back inside and open it up. And that is the, that is the invitation to something deeper, more, greater, further, farther. And that is endlessly fun. Yeah. And endlessly exciting and endlessly um, has the potential for, for change, for like true transformation. That's what we're looking for. Boom. I didn't know I was going to preach there. I just preached a little that bit. Was that was a little man. preachy. A little mini sermon. <laughs> I, I would be, we would be remiss also if we didn't point out the fact that this episode um, was intended to be, obviously it's part of our series, our religious pluralism series, but um, it was obviously not, you know, a uh, high level uh, education in Judaism by any means. Um, we found Adam and I, when we started reading his book, which I know we talked about in the, um, the beginning of the episode and throughout the episode, but you absolutely have to go pick it up. It's called why faith matters, um, is absolutely incredible. And as we found ourselves like digging through this material, it was so good that we were like, this would be a lost opportunity if we didn't, uh, talk about this book and the material in it. Um, as opposed to just saying, all right, tell us about Judaism, you know? Yeah. So obviously there are resources. We will provide some resources as well if you want to uh, dig into some 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 good uh, Jewish history and that sort of thing. Absolutely. But anything um, by Robert Alter. Oh let me man. just let me just lay that out there. Anything by Robert Alter. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, Heschel. He- oh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Yeah. Everything by Abraham Joshua Heschel. Goodness. Some lay reading. Yeah. Just start there and get back to us if you need more recommendations. Yeah. Heschel will take you a while. That's oh a my. thick, those are some thick books, man. So God search for man, the prophets, the Sabbath. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mind blowing. Enjoy. Um, I can't remember who the band is this week as usual. So it doesn't matter. I'm getting enjoy. my life It's going to be good. So just yeah. enjoy it. It'll be in the show notes, but uh, enjoy that. And then next episode coming up, we're going to dive into some Hinduism. So so hopefully you guys have enjoyed the the series. Um, we'll be wrapping it up with the next episode. They are gonna love the Hinduism episode, dude. I I I, I got personally chills. enjoyed all three of them, man. They're amazing, yeah. But the cool part about this is like so many of our episodes center around like things we kind of have an understanding of, like we think we do, and like we don't realize that that's kind of how we approach the whole world with this like assumed understanding. And it's not until you actually sit down with somebody and listen to them that you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Imagine that. Yep. All right. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Love you guys. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's been donating recently. We really appreciate it. Uh, We recently had to upgrade some equipment, so your donations are greatly appreciated. And anybody who's buying merch, obviously that money all goes back into 
uh, buying more merch and paying for things like this. So we really appreciate it. Love you guys so much. Love you guys. Keep deconstructing or whatever it is you're doing right now. <laughs> Constructing, whatever. Yeah. Constructing, reconstructing. It's just how many, how many things can we say? Yeah. Yeah. Keep doing it. <laughs> Keep doing all of it. Have all fun. Right, man. Enjoy. We'll talk to you next time. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. <laughs> and I forgot about this part. And I'm John Williamson. <laughs> Bye, guys. Deconstructionists out. I don't know about you, but I like to tell the truth. But the truth seems to change every Tuesday. When I watch the news, man, it just gives me the blues. No one listens, just on a mission to hear their own voice. It's a wild world, we're all trying to find our place in it. It's a wild world, no one seems to understand it. It's a wild world, but there ain't no way I'm gonna quit it. Love is all I've got to give away Some folks ain't got a dollar to their name Others got their own jet planes We all have the same blood running through our veins Whether or not you pray Black or white, straight or gay You still deserve the love of your neighbor. It's a wild world, we're all trying to find our place in it It's a wild world, no one seems to understand it It's a wild world, but there ain't no way I'm gonna quit it Love is all I've got to give away Try to listen and not to shout Hold your opinions loosely Maybe you're not always right Show a little mercy And hold on to love real tight It's a wild world We're all trying to find our place in it it's a wild world and no one seems to understand it It's a wild world but there ain't no way I'm gonna quit it Love is all I've got to give away Love is all we've got to give away When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.